You're listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. The Memory of Blood. Sci-fi, grief and the generational throughline. Written in 2013 and edited in 2023. On Thursday the 1st of May 1997, at around 6pm, I sat down in front of my old beat-up portable TV in my bedroom to watch an episode of one of my favourite TV shows, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. By this point, BBC Two was showing season four of the successful Star Trek spin-off in its regular early evening slot, and the episode broadcast that faithful night was called The Visitor. I had no idea when I started watching that this particular story would have such a profound and lasting effect on me in the weeks, months and ultimately years to follow. I was 28 and still living at home with my parents. Sitting on my bed in the room I had spent most of my childhood in, I watched as another episode of Deep Space Nine unfolded before me. The confines of space and time, of love and loss, and the merging of the invisible through line that is passed down through generation upon generation would all be explored using the miraculous vehicle of science fiction, where literally anything is possible. Now, in order to fully understand my reaction to watching Deep Space Nine that night, you must allow me to take you through the TV screen and tell you the story of The Visitor. Deep Space Nine is set on a space station way off in the distant future. The station lies near a wormhole, which is a passageway to another quadrant of the galaxy that has been largely unexplored. The station becomes a centre for interstellar trading, exploration and rivalry between races and is acquired by the United Federation of Planets in order to maintain some kind of peace. The series revolves around the main crew and other inhabitants of the station, exploring their lives and experiences. The Visitor focuses on two of these characters, Captain Benjamin Sisko, a widowed Starfleet officer who has been placed in charge of the station, and his teenage son, Jake, an aspiring writer. At the beginning of the story, which is set some 70 years on from the normal timeline of the series, we are presented with Jake as an old man. He is 70 years old and living alone in a house on Earth. It is a stormy night and rain lashes at the windows. He is looking nostalgically at some mementos on his mantle, the personal effects of his father, including a photograph of them both when Jake was 17 and living back on Deep Space Nine. He looks longingly at the picture and then takes out a hypospray and injects something into his neck. He moves to sit down, but is interrupted by the doorbell. A young teenage girl, an aspiring writer called Melanie, has sought out his house and on inviting her in, Jake discovers she is a fan of his literary works, having found an affinity with his writing. She is, however, puzzled by the absence of any of his writing after the publication of his collected stories many years before, and wonders why. Jake smiles and tells her, If you'd shown up yesterday, or last week, I'd have said no and sent you on your way, but here you are, today, of all days. Somehow, 
it seems like the right time for me to finally tell this story. It begins many years ago, when I was 18, and the worst thing that could happen to a young man happened to me. My father died. We are then transported back in time to see young Jake on Deep Space Nine. He's trying to write a short story and he's having some trouble. His father, Cisco suggests he take a break and accompany him to the Gamma Quadrant to see the wormhole undergo something called a subspace inversion, an anomaly that only happens every 50 years. Reluctantly, Jake takes his father's advice, but even aboard the shuttle ship en route, he continues to pore over the text of his story. His father advises him that even as a writer, he should be aware of his surroundings. It's life, Jake, and you can miss it if you don't open your eyes. Jake heeds his father's advice and agrees to take a break. At that moment, the shuttlecraft jolts violently and goes into red alert. The wormhole is interfering with the ship's warp engine. Cisco, with Jake's aid, manages to avert a breach of the engine core, but a stray bolt of energy from it leaps out and hits him. Jake looks on helplessly as his father falls to the floor and then phases in and out, eventually completely dematerialising altogether. He is gone. After a memorial service, we see Jake struggling to come to terms with the loss. He is well looked after by his father's friends, but is distant and removed. One night while Jake is sleeping in his quarters, he's awoken by a crackling surge of electricity, only to find his father seemingly sitting on the floor before him, with charred burns on his chest. He calls out to his dad, who asks what happened. But just as before, Jake watches as his father phases in and out before vanishing completely. Jake is agonised. Was it really his father? Maybe his ghost or just his own imagination? Confused, he tries to put the incident out of his mind. Time passes and before long, a war between two alien races threatens the stability of the station. An evacuation is ordered, but Jake doesn't want to leave. The station is his home and he cannot bear to leave the place where he has so many memories of his father. He is told he can stay a while, but moments later while walking down a corridor, he again witnesses a blue flash of energy. His father materialises again. This time, Jake reaches out and touches him, realising he is very real. Cisco is examined and it is thought that he is trapped in some kind of subspace, existing outside the parameters of space and time. He is shocked when Jake tells him a whole year has passed since the accident, though for him it seemed only moments before. The crew desperately try to keep the captain from leaving again, but he and Jake know they are fighting a losing battle. Jake is racked with guilt and anger that he didn't take action when his father first materialised in his quarters, but his dad reassures him that he could have done nothing. I need to know you're going to be all right, Cisco asks Jake, but his son cannot answer the question, overcome with emotion at the thought of losing his father all over again. The attempts to keep Cisco's body from phasing out again fail and Jake is left staring at the empty place where his father lay. Days, months and years pass and despite some research suggesting his father's accident is linked to the inversion of the wormhole, events and life overtake both the station and Jake. 
Eventually, with a war looming, he is forced to leave his home of five years. He goes back to Earth and lives with his grandfather. And he goes back to his writing, finishing his novel. He eventually marries and moves to the house we now see him in as an old man. His book is received well and he begins work on a collection of short stories. One night while working late, Jake and his wife are shocked when his father once again materialises. Jake had always thought that once he left the station, he would never have any chance of seeing his father again. How could it be that he was here now, on Earth? The two men look at each other in shock, Cisco looking at the man, his son, now in middle age, Jake's primary concern is getting a medical team to his father, but Cisco is eager to find out what he's missed in Jake's life. When Jake introduces his wife, the gravity of how much time has gone by since their last encounter clearly shakes his father. When he sees Jake's published books, a proud smile beams on his face. I always knew you could do it, he says. Jake can hardly contain his emotions and the two men, so close but separated by the confines of time, embrace. Jake makes an apology to his father for giving up on him, but Sisko insists that there was nothing he could have done, that he had a career and a wife to think about. Just as before, Jake's time with his father is limited. In only moments, his body flickers and is gone. With a new drive to find out what is happening to his dad, Jake devotes all of his time to research and discovers that the accident created some kind of subspace link between him and his father. This was why his father always appears next to him. He also discovers that the next time his father will appear is when he is an old man. At this point, Jake abandons his next book and goes back to school to study subspace mechanics. All of his energy is consumed with finding out how to save his father. As his studies enter their final years, he doesn't realise his wife has become estranged. They are no longer together. He has lost her. Determined, he continues and discovers a way to recreate the accident that took his father away. So, some 50 years from that fateful day... Jake travels back to the wormhole with his father's friends aboard the very same shuttlecraft. The wormhole is about to invert again and this might be the last chance he has of bringing his father back. They set up an apparatus that Jake has designed, the culmination of years of research and labour. The shuttle lurches as a wave of energy is thrown out from the wormhole but this time the shields have been modified to absorb the hit. As before all those years ago, a blue bolt of energy leaps out from the warp core, but the device Jake has built harnesses it. A shape begins to form from it, the form of Cisco. As his outline becomes bolder, they realise something is wrong. Both father and son's energy signatures have become weak. They are being pulled into subspace. As their friends look on, they both dematerialise and are gone. The next scene finds Jake and his father standing in a vast whiteness that stretches on forever. Sisko explains that this might be a fragment of subspace. Jake desperately tries to make contact with the shuttle in order to salvage the rescue attempts, but he cannot. His father realises that his son has become obsessed and consumed with finding a way to save him. He asks what has happened in the time since they last met. What of his wife? Does he have grandchildren? 
Jake explains that his wife left him years earlier. Sisko is visibly shaken by this and asks about his son's writing. Again, Jake shakes his head. There was so much to do. This has taken years of planning. Jake, what's happened to you? The confused Sisko asks. This is the last chance I'll ever get to help you, replies his son. Jake's body begins to flicker. His father knows that he will soon be gone. Let go, Jake, if not for me, for you. You still have time to make a good life for yourself. Promise me you'll do that. Promise me. Before Jake can answer his father, he's back on the deck of the shuttle. At this point, old Jake stops telling the story to his young fan. He asks her to get something from his writing desk. It's a handwritten draft of a new set of stories. Jake tells her he decided to honour his father's witch and rebuild his life. He gives her these original papers when she asks for a copy. She asks why he hasn't published them and he makes a joke that no one can ask for rewrites when you publish posthumously. He tells Melanie he wanted to write another two stories but there just wasn't time. Melanie is now suspicious and asks him why. He decides she deserves the truth and explains that after the failed attempt to bring his father back, he thought long and hard about what went wrong. He came to understand that his father was kind of frozen in time at the point of the accident and a connection akin to an elastic cord existed between them. When the cord became tight, it would pull his dad forward through time, but only for a moment. He realised that if his existence through time stopped, the cord would slacken and his father be lost forever. But if the cord was cut while at its strongest, when they were both together, his dad would return to the moment of the accident. Melanie now suspects Jake's intentions. Jake asks her to promise that every once in a while when she's studying his stories, she pokes her head up and takes a look at what's going on. It's life and you can miss it if you don't open your eyes. Old Jake bids goodbye to his young visitor. After she's gone, he takes a copy of his stories and falls into slumber in one of the armchairs. Sometime later, he's woken. His father is before him, glancing at the old man his son has now become. Sisko's face is full of love but tinged with sadness because of the time he has clearly missed with his son. He holds a copy of his son's manuscript. Calmly, Jake tells him he has been expecting him. His father smiles and tells him he's happy that he got back to writing. Jake's body tenses for a moment and he loses control of his breathing. Sisko is concerned and asks what the matter is. The spasm passes and Jake asks him to read the dedication on the front page. It reads, To my father who's coming home. Sisko is confused, but Jake explains, It was me. I've been pulling you through time like an anchor, and now it's time to cut you loose. Jake's eyes glance at the table and the hypospray. His father immediately examines the empty vial and realises his son has poisoned himself. He panics and can hardly get his words out. Jake's body tenses and his father realises he doesn't have long to live. Jake explains that when he dies, his father will go back to the point of the accident and to remember to dodge the energy blast from the engine. 
Cisco cannot believe what is happening. Why? You could still have so many years left, he asks, with his breathing laboured. No, we have to be together when I die. You didn't have to do this for me, his father says. For you, and the boy I was, he needs you more than you know. We're going to get a second chance, replies Jake weakly. Moments later, Jake dies with a peaceful smile on his face. His father gathers him up in his arms. Just then, Sisko's body begins to flicker and he's gone. He's back on the shuttlecraft just moments before the accident. He dives sideways to dodge a burst of energy and tackles his teenage son safely to the floor. Sisko looks at his son, who only moments before had died an old man in his arms. Young Jake is puzzled as to how his dad knew when the blast was coming. I guess we just got lucky this time, replies Sisko, full of emotion. Jake asks his father if he's okay. As he senses his highly emotional state, Sisko embraces him and tells him, I am now, Jake. I am now. As this episode came to a close, I sat on my bed in my room, my mind full of what I had just watched. I felt an almost unbearable amount of grief bearing down on me, the pressure of which was so suffocating I could hardly contain it. It seemed to well up from somewhere deep within me, and when it broke the surface I found myself sobbing uncontrollably for what seemed a long time, unable to stop or calm myself. It was as if someone had released the top of a shaken fizzy drink. I had never before had such a strong reaction to watching something, especially science fiction. Eventually the attack of sadness and grief subsided and I resumed my daily activities of doing very little. Over the next few days though the story stayed with me until eventually fading into the back of my mind. Some three weeks later, on the evening of the 20th of May 1997, my mum passed away after suffering a massive heart attack. That night, the life I had known for 28 years was over. I had reached a fork in the road and knew things would never be the same again. At around this time of my mother's passing, I'd picked up a newly released double CD called Space and Beyond by the City of Prague Symphony Orchestra. It was a compilation of classic and less well-known sci-fi music from film and TV. There were two pieces on the CD from Star Trek that really became important to me and had an atmosphere that allowed me to tap into that other place of quiet reflection and meditation. The first is a piece called He's Toast, composed by Dennis McCarthy, from an episode of the third season of DS9 called Life Support, in which one of the characters suffers irreparable brain damage and despite treatment only has a limited time to live. It's a beautifully haunting piece that seems to encapsulate loss and grief. The other piece from season one of Next Generation, episode Skin of Evil, is called Tasha's Farewell by Ron Jones and deals with the death and loss of character Tasha Yar. Again, it has a real ethereal quality that just puts you out in space and into a state of contemplation. Both of these tunes became stalwarts that I called on time and time again when I needed to be off somewhere else on my own. I suppose everyone deals with grief differently. 
It doesn't matter how you deal with it, only that you find a way to cope with the unbearable feeling of loss. And grief, at least in my experience, isn't affected by the laws of time. By its very essence, it exists beyond it. It has a hold that seems to reach outside of normality and pull you into a timeless inner world. It can be triggered just moments or many, many years after a loved one has passed on by any one of the senses. When we are born, it is as if a giant record button is pressed and our brains start to remember everything that we experience. It's a vast library that fills as we grow. Short-term memories are transferred to it for safekeeping, locked away in our subconscious lying in wait for the day when something seemingly insignificant triggers them and opens up a world we thought we'd long forgotten. A bite of apple pie that your nan used to bake when you were a boy. The wheezing sound your father used to make while sucking on one of his cigarettes. The crunch of your first snowfall underfoot. The view through the toy shop window that you were taken on on your seventh birthday. An old black and white movie that played constantly in the kitchen while the Sunday dinner simmered away. The recalling of a magical book with transparent images of skylines and cityscapes that you borrowed from the library and held in much smaller hands. Of green sleeves blaring out from a distant ice cream van with the promise of something soft, sweet and cold. Enough to quench the thirst of any game of hide-and-seek. The taste of tea from a flask that was left lovingly for you every day when you came home for lunch from junior school. The liquidity of perspective that exists in the height of a childhood fever, where time and space shift. And on and on they go, fragments of memories, all shuffled up and ready for a random imaginary sensory finger to select. You can't turn them off. They are markers in time. They show us the path from what we once were to who we have become and what we can probably be. They are a comfort to us in times of sadness, a familiar friend when we are alone, and perhaps more importantly, a way to deal with the process of loss. It is by remembering in a balanced way that we keep those who have died alive in a way that we can deal with. Memory, in some ways, is our saviour. Memory is the time machine of the mind. In it, we can travel through our experiences and review our life. But I think its reach goes beyond that. I have always suspected that our mind is capable of picking up senses, memories or feelings which have not yet been imprinted on the fabric of ours or others' lives in the here and now. We have all shared the experience of walking into a space and feeling elated or heavy with sadness. Even somewhere we haven't been before can impress its subtle energy on us. Mystics might call this an imprint left by a living being. I tend to think that the imprint is in itself a memory left behind and which can be tuned into with the help of a sensory trigger. Just as we can tune into our own memory by using the same technique... Would it not be possible to get a sense of someone else's memory if the bond was strong enough while they were still alive? The bond between a parent and a sibling is perhaps one of the strongest in nature. Now that I am a parent myself, I fully appreciate that. The very act of combining two life forces in order to make another is a link that can never be broken, whether physically or spiritually. Added to that, the strengthening of that bond by becoming a provider of food, water, clothing, warmth and love, by teaching right from wrong, caring in sickness and in health, 
providing a nurturing environment of happiness and support, knowing when to make a decision on their behalf or when to let them take responsibility for their own actions. These and many other factors bear down on a parent, and it is these commitments that make the bond in life between a miraculous one. But does it go deeper? Mothers often relate accounts of telepathy between themselves and their baby, often waking up just a few minutes before a feed is due during the night. This could relate to synchronistic sleep cycles or being in tune with milk-producing rhythms, but there are some further accounts of instances when the responsibilities of nursing and feeding fall on the father. For example, if the mother is too weak after childbirth, where the father's sleep pattern will change dramatically, waking moments before the infant cries out for a feed. A parent can sense the onslaught of illness in their child before the signs have even broken the surface. If we extend this skill a little further, we enter the seemingly uneven ground of psychic abilities where, truth be told, many fraudsters lie in wait to take financial advantage of those loved ones that are left behind. But what if the bond that is fueling the ability is the love between a parent and child? Is it something imagined? Is it something to be feared? Or is it a normal, natural, measured response, just as with fight or flight? Therefore, could it be possible that the consequences of watching the parental bond between Jake and Cisco play out in The Visitor, so emotionally charged, triggered such a response in me, tuning me into a level of consciousness that allowed me to sense what was coming down the timeline, a glimpse of a future that my subconscious understood, but my rational self could make no sense of. Something so life-changing I could pick up the effects of it weeks before it actually happened. It is perfectly possible in my mind that this is what I experienced. It is also reasonable to suggest that I just had a normal reaction to the nature of the very well-written and emotive drama. But what puzzles me, though, and tends me to believe otherwise, is the overbearing strength of the reaction. It was an outpouring of grief, and by its very nature, it prepared me in some way for the loss that was to follow only weeks later. After the initial shock of losing someone so close, I felt surprisingly calm, although I was obviously upset, I don't remember breaking down with the same intensity that I had experienced just weeks before while watching DS9. How could I have been more upset by a TV story rather than something so devastating in real life? I reacted to others around me, but inside I was calm and relaxed. I wonder, had I already grieved in some way? I watched the world go by around me and felt like I was cocooned inside a protective shell. Strangers approached me and seemed concerned that I was alright. I remember one occasion when I was standing waiting for a bus home late one night in the city centre. A young guy who was also waiting went out of his way to offer me one of his sweets. There was no agenda to his offer, no other communication between us. In my experience, strangers don't exhibit this kind of behaviour. It is for these reasons that I have a strong connection to this exquisitely told sci-fi story. I recently went back and watched it again, and though it wasn't as intense an experience as watching it all those years ago, it still packed an emotional punch. I'd like to think that it helped me in some way, because having watched that episode, which dealt with the subject of losing a parent in such a deep and profound way, it prepared me on some level for the ordeal of the real thing. Not only that, of course, 
there are also many parallels in it to the realities of the parent-child bond. Jake had lost his father, and because of a connection so strong, filled with memory, love and longing, had been pulling him along through his own life, as perhaps the memories of our loved ones do for us in our life. In the end, in order to save his father, Jake had to sacrifice his life, not only mentally but physically too, in order to release his father and give them both a second chance. In reverse, a parent must make sacrifices in their own lives to allow a child to share both space and time. With the arrival of a child, some aspects of life cease to be important and consequently wither and fade. Within the safe confines of science fiction, Jake's character was able to give back what his father had given him, life itself. The realities that real life throws up are somewhat different, but the lessons the visitor teaches are not. My responsibility is to try and pass down the wisdom and love that I receive from my own parents. I'm not only my son's father, but his grandmother and granddad combined. And perhaps when he has grown into a larger pair of trousers, he will read this himself and feel their hands resting reassuringly on his shoulders. There are other parallels between the themes explored in this story and those recorded by experiencers of phenomena such as apparitions, astral projection, out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. For instance, we might substitute heaven or the astral plane for subspace. There are many accounts of the silver cord that connects the ethereal body to its physical counterpart during an OBE or astral projection and there is a common belief that if this cord were to be severed, death would follow. Similarly, a place beyond the confines of linear time is thought to exist beyond our own four dimensions. This would be a place where everything is happening at once and is fully accessible. Lastly, we can compare Cisco's flickering dematerialization to that of a transparent ghost that walks through walls or fades into our world from someplace else. It is only now as a father that I am able to appreciate the huge level of energy and commitment that my parents bestowed on me. Standing here on the high generational middle ground, looking up the line at the ever-growing small Treadwell, who is able to take on the world in a way that I never could, every milestone he passes along the way, no matter how big or small, reminds me of myself at his age. And this in turn leads me back along the generational line to my own folks. I guess it must have been the same for them when I was a boy. They would have been reminded of themselves as children and their own parents, my grandparents, would not have been far from their thoughts too. Just as young Treadwell is oblivious to the constant uncovering of childhood memories in his dad's time-travelling mind, in those moments of quiet reflection, of seemingly looking into the far-off distance of nothingness, that place where memories and daydreams coexist together, my mother and father were, no doubt, lost somewhere along the invisible through-line that bonds parent with child, just as Cisco was lost to his own son Jake in a place called subspace, being pulled along Jake's lifeline toward its inevitable conclusion. I do hope that when Short Treadwell becomes Tall Treadwell, when he grows tired of Ben 10, Spider-Man and the likes, that he might show an appreciation of Trek himself, in whatever incarnation or timeline it may be in. In fact, he's already stepping into more mature sci-fi already. He's been quite taken with Doctor Who lately, 
which I'm very pleased about. Yes, around tea time on Saturdays, the Treadwell men take to the sofa and watch Matt Smith having another adventure in his trusty blue box. Just as I used to peep out from behind the sofa watching Tom Baker battling with green one-eyed plastic blobs so Max will hide from ice warriors, cybermen and weeping angels. Inevitably, as a child grows into a rebellious teenager and young adult, common interests tend to go out the window. However, sometimes these interests reconnect, as with myself and my mum's enthusiasm for science fiction, especially Star Trek. Many a long afternoon was spent out in space watching Picard, Janeway and Sisko boldly going where no one had gone before. In the Star Trek canon, the benchmark that the visitor achieves in its writing and acting has very rarely been equaled for me and it leaves behind a legacy for future generations of science fiction fans to be inspired and touched by. It was deservedly nominated for a Hugo Science Fiction Award for Best Drama. It is effortlessly acted by Avery Brooks, Cisco, and Tony Todd, future Jake, and beautifully written by Michael Taylor. I can't recommend it highly enough, especially for parents and especially for fathers of sons. It is not merely another throwaway TV sci-fi story. It is food for the soul itself. It is art at its highest possible zenith, allowing us to look deeply at ourselves, at life and beyond and learn what it is to be human. Whether or not the story tapped into some kind of subconscious vein that heightened my feelings and ultimately facilitated a connection to a nexus point of immense change, or just simply evoked a strong emotional response, really doesn't matter. The healing effect it had of release and relief continues to do so to this day through its central message that the cord between blood relatives can and will always exist, no matter where you are in time and space. Dedicated to the memory of Diane and H. Treadwell. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nick Treadwell's Storyville. Please subscribe if you liked what you heard, and be sure to check out my Substack blog, Letters from Storyville, at nicktreadwell.com dot substack dot com